is Secrets of the Most Productive People, a productivity podcast where we work smarter instead of harder and dissect exactly how to get it all done. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor Kate Davis. On today's episode, why microaggressions persist even in good office cultures and how to combat them. In the last few years, and especially since the civil unrest of the summer, more companies are reevaluating their practices and trying to figure out how to reimagine a workplace where everyone, particularly people of color, have the same opportunities. And while it's important for companies to make changes to their hiring practices to create a more diverse workforce or make efforts like creating employee resource groups, which help with inclusion, these efforts aren't enough. One of the major ways that a company's diversity and inclusion efforts are sabotaged is by intentional or unintentional words and actions from their employees in the form of microaggressions. Joining me to discuss what microaggressions are and how they can take root in even good company cultures and how to combat them is Dorian St. Fleur. She's a racial equity strategist and leadership coach who specializes in helping organizations build anti-racist workplaces. Building on her experience developing DEI strategies for companies including Google and AppNexus, Dorian consults with organizations in order to create customized strategies, learning experiences, and coaching plans that actually move the needle on their diversity equity, and inclusion goals. She also recently hosted a workshop for the Fast Company Innovation Festival on this very subject, and loyal listeners may remember her from our episode on how to search for a job during a pandemic. Dorianne, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited for our conversation today. Oh, me too. So I feel like this conversation could go on forever. There's so much to dig into, but I, maybe we should start at the like the basics. So we're kind of used to hearing D&I, diversity and inclusion, but you talk a lot about DEI, diversity, equity and inclusion. Why is that distinction important? Yeah, I think just ultimately, I think it's important for folks to realize that the act like when we talk about diversity, it, it doesn't include inclusion. Like there's so many things that are that, that that word does not capture. And so I like to really just align on definitions and break things down um, just so that we're all on the same page and know what we're talking about and what we're striving towards. So when we think about diversity, it's literally just how the organization looks. It's just the numbers, the facts, the representation across different dimensions of diversity, race, gender, ability, et cetera. The equity, which is the piece that I think a lot of people um, kind of leave out and don't think about, is about providing the right level of resources. It's about providing the right accommodations and opportunities to everyone at the organization. You want to make sure that there are no differences in the way folks experience the, the work, differences in outcome when we're talking about performance reviews or compensation, et cetera, based on those same dimensions of diversity. And then there's the I, the inclusion. And this is more about how employees feel. It's the perception that they have that their company's culture is, is a place where they feel valued and like they belong. So each of those letters, DEI, actually stand for something and are important as we think about uh, this, this conversation in a holistic way. Yeah, I think that that E part, the equity part that people miss out on or don't even think about, you you had explained it before um, in your workshop for, for the Innovation Festival in a really interesting way that I think people can can kind of understand is it's not everybody having the same things. It's it's having 
can you explain it? It's having like yeah. access to to things that help them do their jobs in the in the best way, right? Exactly. It's the difference between equality and equity. And so equality is treating everyone the exact same way. So if I'm, uh, you know, tasked at my at my organization with sending everyone laptops, we're now all working remotely. And so as part of your onboarding, I'm going to send everyone a laptop. It makes things easier, make sure that they have the best of the best. And equality is saying, well, everyone will get the same laptop, same make, same model, same size. All of that is what we'll do. And uh, on the surface, it sounds like, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's treat everyone the same. Equity, though, is saying, you know what, based on where folks are, what what their specific circumstances are, the same make and model may not work for them. So I'm going to find out about my new hires, find out what they need to succeed. And for example, if there's someone who's blind, the keyboard that I send them will be equipped with Braille because that's what they need to succeed, not the keyboard that everyone else has. And so it's really about thinking about specifically what do my people need to thrive? What accommodations do I need to make sure um, that that are embedded in the process so that people can get to the same outcomes, which is doing their best work and showing up in an engaged way. See, that's then that's so important because I think that's, you know, what we're we're going to be talking about a lot is like good intentioned companies, like giving everybody the exact same thing, treating everybody the exact same way seems like a good intention, but it doesn't have the best outcomes. And and that kind of gets to the I part of it, the inclusion part, which, you know, when we talk about building an anti-racist workplace, it's it's where the good intentioned companies mess up is the inclusion part. Right. Absolutely. I think that when we think about how do we make sure that everyone feels included, this is why I keep um, like kind of underlining this point. It's about the perception of the employee. And so when we just make these blanket processes and say, oh, we're going to do this and everyone's going to have that, we're not taking into account the individuality based on my gender, my race, my worldview, whether I'm a parent or not, my ability, all of these things, we're not taking that into account. And that influences my perception, that influences how I experience the workplace. And so it's time to take it uh, take it a step further. It's not about, again, oh, let me just blanket, do this blanket process and make sure everyone's the same. It's really digging in and understanding what do my folks, what do my people need? And there's so much research. There are so many consultants who do this work. You can survey your, your, your workplace. There's a lot of ways to really dig in to figure out what makes sense for my organizations and how can I improve inclusion. Because that's the part that companies mess up. So there's been like so much focus for 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 years on diversity and diversity numbers and, and all of these companies put out their diversity reports. And, you know, a lot of times the numbers are really horrible, but it's so much like what is the, the makeup? How many people do we have of, uh, you know, what's the mix? And then that's where they stop like a lot of companies Mm -hmm. that's where they stop and the inclusion part is hand in hand with the retention part i think you know we see a lot of companies maybe get a lot of people in the door but they don't keep them there yeah, I like to call that, uh, well, I didn't make it up, but this, there's a term, term of the leaky bucket. And it's when we spend all of this time on hiring and we spend all of this time on recruiting and sourcing and interviewing and all of this. And we revamp the processes, we take out the bias, all of that. And then when folks get to your organization, it's like, this is a horrible place mm-hmm. to work. I'm leaving. Mm-hmm. And so you have to continue to do that process. So I deliberately, when I'm working with folks, uh, 
like let's put hiring is important. Please don't get me wrong. Diversity mm-hmm. is important. The numbers are important, but that's not the main thing. Let's let's push that down a, not, a notch in our priorities list, and let's start with retention. Let's mm-hmm. start with inclusion. Let's make sure we take care of inside of our house first. Then let's invite people over. Yeah. Oh, that's a great analogy. Like get your clean your house up before you invite <laughs> people over. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So so one of the biggest things that that make a workplace a horrible place to work and and it's the missing it's the big piece in the inclusion puzzle is our microaggressions Mm -hmm. can you explain I feel like everybody's kind of heard the term by now but I think a lot of people don't know what it actually means can you explain what microaggressions are and what they look like at work yeah and so first I want to say that the term microaggressions because of that micro in front sometimes makes people feel like there are small things that folks do as small implications and they're actually a huge uh saboteur mm-hmm. of uh, in uh, an organization's diversity and inclusion efforts so microaggressions are comments or actions that negatively target a marginalized group of people so when we say marginalized people who are othered or put to the side people from historically underrepresented and excluded groups um and this is how racism often shows up at work and so microaggressions can be unintentional and i think that a lot of folks have a problem kind of owning and internalizing it because they're like well i didn't mean to do it it wasn't on purpose but they also can be intentional is what i i really want to make the point come across that it's intentional or unintentional but it doesn't even matter if it was on purpose or not Mm -hmm. because it's about the impact that the microaggression has and so that's the first thing like yes let's define it Yes, it's a comment or action. It targets marginalized people. Sometimes it's not on purpose, but even beyond whether you meant it or not, let's move away from the intent. Like Mm -hmm. I was just trying to compliment you or I was just trying to do this and let's focus on the impact that it has on often people of color. Mm -hmm. And the thing about microaggressions is that it has a compounding effect. And so maybe your comment was small. Maybe you just said, oh, Dorian, you, you cut your hair, it looks different. You know, can I touch it? In your mind, you're curious and you just want to see what it is. You look so different. Last time I saw you, you had braids all the way down to your back and now your hair is short. To me, it's like over the 15 years that I've been working, people have always had comments about my hair. You want to touch it. You you think I'm some sort of exhibition and and it, it just doesn't feel good. It's like you're bringing attention to something that for so long I've been criticized for. Oh, your hair is not professional in this mm-hmm. way, and even though it's how it naturally grows out of my head. And so all of that is what's in my mind when I respond to you, do not touch my hair. I am not a pet. Don't pet. Like when I do this and you're like, whoa, I was just mm-hmm. trying to, you know. But why are you so touchy? Why are you so offended? Exactly. Yeah. It's, it has this compounding effect. So I really want folks to understand that first. Then it goes even further because microaggressions are actually three distinct categories of microaggressions. Mm-hmm. It goes really deep. And so there's micro assaults. And this is when a person engages in explicitly discriminatory behavior, um, you know, using a racial slur, um, 
doing things that are just like, there's no doubt about it. <laughs> this was discriminatory. Mm-hmm. And a common example of this is, you know, someone telling a racist joke at mm-hmm. work and, you know, they thought it was funny. Maybe they heard it in a context and other people laugh, maybe other people of color laughed. And so they mm-hmm. thought it was okay. And then when confronted with, oh my gosh, that was racist. Like, this is what you just said. They're like, oh no, 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 I was just kidding. I I didn't mean anything by it. You know, don't be so sensitive. And so that's considered a micro assault. Um, Then there are micro insults. And this is when people communicate in a way that conveys rudeness or insensitivity and demeans a person's racial heritage or identity. So in some cases, the aggressor, so the person who's perpetrating this microaggression might even think they're being complimentary. So, you know, telling someone who is Asian, this is a common one, oh, wow, you're, you're, you speak really well, or mm-hmm. you have good English, or telling a Black person, oh, you're so articulate, right? Maybe you think you're giving a compliment, but mm-hmm. it's like, well, why wouldn't I be articulate? Or why wouldn't I speak good English? This is something mm-hmm. that came up a lot with uh, President Obama. It's like, oh, he speaks so, he went to Harvard. Of He's so he well-spoken, speaks- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, most, most people who go to Harvard are well-spoken, yes. <laughs> it's like, what is the implication? What are you, what are you, what is the, the other assumption mm-hmm. there by doing that? Um, and then there are micro invalidations. And this is when the thoughts, feelings, or lived experiences of people of color are negated or dismissed. And so, you know, saying I'm colorblind, I don't see color, like I just see you for who you are. Well, as a black woman, woman, the way I walk through the world, I, I don't get to ignore color. It's something that is on my mind, right? And mm-hmm. so you're, by saying that, you know, racism doesn't exist or I don't see color, it's invalidating the real experiences of people who are dealing with this every day. I think we see that that in those last two. I mean, I, th- I feel like the first one, you know, the assaults where it's it's so I feel like a lot of people probably feel like that's so blatant. They're like, oh, I would never do that. I would never tell a racist joke. I would never use a racist r- racial slur. But I feel like the the micro insults and the micro invalidations probably happen a lot again in those like good intentioned I meant the best by it I thought I was complimenting you or I don't see you know a lot of people like you just said the whole colorblind thing right of like people view that as I'm trying to not be racist by saying that I'm colorblind I'm trying to like why do you have to play the race card can't we move beyond this and Mm -hmm. and and I think that's so important to understand that that really how hurtful that is and how much that invalidates like you said like your experience of you can't not be a black woman walking through the world and and so you know a coworker saying like just just why do you have to talk about that you know it's like mm-hmm. why do I have to talk about what my life is and how I'm experiencing <laughs> everything you know like it's the the, the biggest thing it's um, also it's also not even true like how do mm-hmm. you look at me and not notice mm-hmm. my skin complexion it, it's just not true and so I think we've been conditioned that oh my gosh, it's taboo, don't talk about Mm -hmm. it. And it's not that we can't talk about race, it's that we need to be mindful about how we're talking about it. We need to make sure that we're not talking about it in a way that normalizes and makes white, the white experience like the norm and so Mm -hmm. everything else is other. Like that's what we should be thinking about. But in and of itself, talking about race and and acknowledging what life is, is not a bad thing. Yeah, I think, and I feel like that's a tricky thing for for white people to understand and for white people to to know how to talk about race without invalidating or kind of like and without using themselves as the as the microphone you know I think that's a really hard thing for a lot of white people is like to to realize that they need to shut up you know um 
And, and you, I know that in your workshop, you talked a lot about allyship and mm-hmm. and kind of the chasm between what white people view themselves as allies at work and what people of color view as having allies at work. Can you talk about allyship a little bit? Yeah. So allyship is another one of these terms that we kind of throw around. And so just to align on what that is, it's really about lending as a person of power or privilege in a situation. So if we think about the workplace, most likely it's white uh, people in general, specifically white men, um, Asian men as well, are in positions of power and privilege at work. And it's about lending that power and privilege in the uh, pursuit of leveling the playing field and the pursuit of making sure that everyone has that equity that we talked about and has an opportunity to feel included and like they belong. And it's not that an ally should be a savior, right? Mm. Black people, people of color don't need saving, right? Mm -hmm. But it's about, again, lending your power. If you have a voice in a room, if you're a CEO, if you are you know, a manager of a team, you have power. And so making sure you're leveraging that power so that everyone uh, can get to the outcomes that they, that they need. Um, and it doesn't, I know I just named like powerful positions, a CEO, et cetera, but everyone in an organization at that interpersonal level can be an ally. So that's the first thing. And then yes, there's a discrepancy in how uh, white employees see themselves versus how people of color see themselves. So there was a recent study that leanin.org did and they surveyed like 7,000 employees. It was done in the US and 80%, over 80% of the white employees that they surveyed saw themselves as allies to people of color at work. And so you're like, great, that's awesome. (laughs) These white folks are being allies and they're lending their power and privilege and they're speaking up and they're interrupting microaggressions. That's great. But in the same survey, only 45% of the black women that they surveyed and only 55% of the Latin women that they surveyed felt that they had strong allies at work. And so just off the bat, it's like, well, there's a discrepancy in that number. And then when they went further, the allies that those black women and Latin women had were more often than not other people Mm. of color. And so there's a disconnect. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you talk about, you know, those, those white folks that feel like they are allies that they are, and they probably, you know, obviously don't feel like they are the people who are perpetrating these, these micro invalidations, these micro insults, but they maybe are, but, Mm -hmm. or that they, or that they feel like they would um, speak up or intervene if they, if they, you know, got called out on it. Let's, let's, I guess, talk about the getting called out on it part. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, so theoretically, if you are an ally or if you want to be an ally, or if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, I didn't realize that some of these other things I've said or I've I've heard um and you get called out on it how how should you respond and you know subsequently like how should you not respond mm-hmm. so I'll start with how you should not respond and there's this framework that I learned about um and it, it was coined by a psychologist her name is Jennifer Fried and basically it it's so lovely and beautiful how it all plays out into this uh, framework called DARVO, D-A-R-V-O. And basically um, it's rooted in how abusers respond to you know, being called out on their abuse and microaggressions have been likened to a form of psychological abuse. So I don't think it's a stretch mm-hmm. that we're using this framework in this context. And so this is where 
uh, the offender who's called out. So, you know, someone has said something to me and I'm saying, hey, that was offensive and, and this is why. And the response is that the first in per- first denies that the microaggression ever took place. So that's mm-hmm. the D. And so they may say something like, Dorian, I cannot believe that you think that what I just said was offensive. I'm not racist. Like, that is not what I meant. I can't believe you're taking this out of context. Why do you have to play the race card? All of those sorts of mm-hmm. things. Then the offender attacks, so this is the A, attacks the victim or the target of the microaggression for attempting to hold them accountable. And so saying, you know, every, you make everything about race, the fact that you're having this conversation with me right now, I feel so uncomfortable. I feel like you're, you're singling me out. This does not feel good. How dare you do this to me? Um, and by doing that, they're reversing the R, the victim, that's V, and the offender, O, so Darvo. And it, it just, the way it plays out, it happens so quickly, mm-hmm. um, but it really, really is furthering the trauma that this target of this microaggression feels. Not only did you make, you know, you, you, you invalidated my experience as a person of color, I got up the gumption to come to you and say, hey, this is how I feel. Mm-hmm. Now you're denying that you did this. You're attacking me for saying something to you and you're making me feel like I'm offending you and you're the victim. That just think about how that just plays out in the mind of this person who has experienced this microaggression. Yeah, I can see. I I feel like when you when you give those examples and you walk through it, probably everybody can think of a time that they've either either inadvertently done something similar to that or witnessed something similar to that. I think that defensive, especially when it comes to race and especially when it comes to being called out on racist behavior, because nobody or most people probably don't want to think of themselves as racist. So, you know, being called out on something racist, I feel like that's that's probably a lot of people go right there. It's like, no, 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 that's not what I meant by it. You're wrong. But how much that just makes it worse it just in it mm-hmm. you know especially if it was an an invalidation of your feelings and your experiences and then you go and further invalidate your feelings and experiences and and yeah the the courage that it takes to be able to to speak up so what should a person do if you are in the position where you get called out on a microaggression yeah So I think the first thing you need to do is apologize for your behavior. Don't make excuses, you know, oh my gosh, that's not what I meant. Like we don't need to Mm -hmm. do that. Um, And if the person who has on the receiving end of this microaggression has explained what happened, why it was offensive, thank them. You know, I'm so sorry that, um, that, that what I said has offended you. Um, You know, thank you for educating me and letting me understand what what happened, why this was offensive. I really do appreciate that. I'm going to process all of this because I, I do want to make sure that this doesn't happen again. So that's the first step is to apologize. And then the second thing is to listen. And I know that we, you know, listen, oh, I listen, I'm a good listener, mm-hmm. but really listen to understand and to empathize with the person who's sharing this with you. Resist the urge to defend yourself. I know that it's a knee-jerk reaction. Oh, I didn't mean to hurt you. I That's not what I meant, but resist that urge. Resist the urge to defend yourself, your actions, or to dismiss what the person has said. Really listen to what they're saying. Um, and then finally, is to learn, make a commitment to educate yourself on the very real, extremely varied lived experiences of those who are different from you. 
understand what microaggressions are, understand the different examples of microaggressions so that you decrease the likelihood that you'll do it again. And so that you can pay attention. And if you see someone who is doing it, you can speak to them about it or you can interrupt it when it's happening. Really educate yourself. In this day and age, there is so much information out there. I'm, my, my tolerance is getting lower and lower mm -hmm. for folks saying, oh, I didn't know or I wasn't mm -hmm. sure. There's a lot of information about what microaggressions are, how it plays out at work, how it plays out in life. And so it's up to you to educate yourself um, on that. Yeah, I know. I, I feel like, you know, this this summer, especially when when all of the, the civil unrest happened and so many companies like seem to suddenly wake up to these issues, I felt so frustrated of like, where were you, you know, you know, I, I even said, I was like, oh, I'm glad that Black Lives Matter now. Like, didn't Black Lives Matter five years ago? Like, mm -hmm. where, are, where were you? What took you so long? I guess, but like, welcome. Thank you for finally being here, you know? But, um, you know, I think that's really useful, that explaining of how, how to act when you are confronted on something. And that's, those are skills that, that are just leadership skills, work skills, life skills. You know, when you are confronted about something, it is a knee jerk reaction to say that wasn't my intention or, or that's not what I meant or whatever. But, but a real, a real leader, a real, you know, good employee, a real good human being says, thank you. You know, you're, you're really getting a gift, especially from somebody that, you know, has the courage to speak up when, when you offended them. And this is something that they, you know, they're a marginalized person that has had to deal with this their whole life. You're being given a gift by saying, you know, this is what you did. You, you need should learn from this. And, and hopefully, you know, even if they came to it this late, hopefully people are finally seeing this as the gift it is to to learn from it and ex expand the way they think um you you mentioned you know and, the, and then kind of maybe the next step is that they can become the person that interrupts the microaggression when they see it happen if you're that person listening right now and you feel pretty sure that you're not going to be the perpetrator of the microaggression but you are in a workplace where you definitely have witnessed it or you feel like you will witness it how do you interrupt it how do you be a good ally, I guess, and speak up on somebody else's behalf. But also, you know, if there's a, a power dynamic in play, I think a lot of people are like, well, if it's my manager, how do I how do I deal with this? What do I say? Mm -hmm. So I think that's a really and this question comes up so much. And I think the first thing is to really understand your audience, read the room, know, just know all of these things that are at play, right? If you're, let's say you're in a team meeting um, and your manager is there and the culture of the team is that folks do not interrupt the manager. They are not the one to mm -hmm. say, excuse me, that was a microaggression. Then your strategy needs to reflect that. And so it could be in that instance where after the meeting, you one, check in with the person who was the target of the microaggression. Hey, I saw what happened. I want you to know, I affirm you that I, I validate your point of view. That was not okay. Um, I didn't feel necessarily comfortable saying something there for two reasons. One, you know how the, our team is and mm -hmm. I just didn't wanna start that. Two, I wanted to check in with you and understand are you okay with me saying this? I'm not trying to come to your rescue or, mm -hmm. you know, or anything like that. And so I just want to kind of talk this out with you, but more importantly, wanted to know that I see you. Mm. Um, and then based on that conversation, decide on the strategy of how to go and address that. Do you address your manager directly? 
Do you address your manager's manager? Do you address um, HR? Mm. Right. It's 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 a real uh, a real thing to have to navigate. Am I risking my job? Am I risking my livelihood, my reputation at work, et cetera? But you have to have know within yourself what's more important, right? Is it, um, you know, making not making my manager uncomfortable and they're and not making them mad at me, or is making sure that I speak up and my voice is heard in this process? And I always encourage folks to think about what's at stake and what they're willing to risk. Sometimes. All that's at stake is discomfort, is, is our level of comfort. We'll just feel uncomfortable. It'll be awkward. You're not losing your job. Mm-hmm. You're not like you, you won't get a pay cut. Um, and so think about, is that worth not saying anything because I don't want to feel uncomfortable or I don't want to make my manager feel uncomfortable? So I'd say to think about that. And then ultimately, and ideally what you could be doing, let's say you're, the team culture is completely different, is in that moment, whoa, is that what you meant to say? And Mm -hmm. I I tend to use humor um, to kind of disarm the person, the situation. And so saying that didn't come out right. I'm sure that's not what you intended. Let's let me give you a second to clean that up. Um, Or (laughs) (laughs) that 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 was that was offensive or just anything that feels natural to you, just interrupting in that moment. And it's not that you have to say, oh my gosh, you just made, you know, Dorian feel super offended. She's a black woman. How dare you say that? It's not that you have to do that, Mm -hmm. but just like, that doesn't seem aligned with our organizational culture or that just didn't, that, that just didn't feel good. Like, let's take a moment to rethink how we, what we think about what we, what you just said. So I think there's a lot of ways to, to interrupt in the moment mm-hmm. based on where, where you are, what the audience is, what the culture is. I like that. I like that. Um, kind of giving and I think that works for a lot of people maybe to to kind of almost repeat it back to them and and give them an opportunity to really hear what they said it's like did you really mean to say that you think black people are criminals you know like oh Mm -hmm. what oof when I hear it back like no I didn't mean like I'm gonna give you an opportunity to rethink what you just said you know like do Mm -hmm. you really as opposed to saying like wow what you just said was incredibly racist like that put somebody immediately on the defensive and I think Mm -hmm. I like that advice too of of thinking who you can talk to I I hope that and I think that a lot of people have somebody in their office if it's not their you know their manager but they have that somebody that's like okay this is a safe person to talk to like I can talk to Kate and tell her by the way you know what was said at that meeting was really offensive can you and then like you know Kate's gonna go and say something you know like you have like a safe person that you feel like it's the risk is is not as high like maybe to your job or it might not be as scary than as like direct you know um talking to the CEO, like confronting the CEO. Yeah. Something else that just popped up um, when you were saying this for me is that a lot of the reason why, you know, these microaggressions, and even if we take it back to me too, like all of these things that are pervasive and happen in organizations, it's allowed to happen because people don't say anything Mm -hmm. and everyone is afraid to confront. And I know that it's scary, but the more that things are swept under the rug is the more they will continue to happen. And so as part of your process of thinking, should I interrupt? Should I say something? Just think about how, what part you want to play in this overall system mm-hmm. and, and, and make the decision with that in mind. Yeah. I mean, and it goes back to, you know, like inaction is action by not saying mm-hmm. something you are saying that you are okay with it. Yes. You know? Yeah. Um, well, I think all of this has given a lot of really practical actions that people can take and, and probably, you know, hopefully listening to this, they can see how this has played out in their own lives or in their own workplaces. Um, is there anything else before before we end that you you think that people really need to know or consider? 
Yeah. Um, so I know that this is going to air the day before um, the election. Mm-hmm. And so I think one thing that's often overlooked when we think about inclusion, back to that point around making sure everyone feels like they belong, is this idea of political diversity. And so I know that in some industries and in some organizations, most of the employees swing one way versus another. And so it, sometimes it can be hard to remember that there are other folks who have differing um, worldviews mm-hmm. and, and perspectives. And while it's not okay to tolerate hate, discrimination, um, any of that stuff, so I'm not saying that, what we should be thinking about as organizations is how we make space and make room for people to process their feelings, no matter what happens in, uh, and not just this presidential election, any election, any political thing that happens in our world, making sure people feel like um, I, my voice can, can either, either if you have already a culture where people can speak up and say these things, then their voices can be heard as well in a respectful, um, way. And they, you know, they want to process this as well. Um, and if, if it's not something you talk about in your organization, at least creating space for that, like, do people need a day off, mm-hmm. um, after the election? Do people, do we want to start our meeting the same way when in the height of the pandemic, where we started our meetings, how is everyone doing? We're just checking in. If you need to turn your cameras off, let's do that. Like, do we need to do that as well? Mm -hmm. It's really just thinking about this is a big time in the life of our country uh, and your employees' lives. And so just creating room for everyone's perspective in that case. I'm not saying have open town halls and do these things. If that doesn't jive with your culture, that is totally fine. But just treat people as human beings. Everyone has a different perspective and create space for folks to process how they're feeling. Yeah, I think I think that's so important. I think, you know, that that ties into something that that people talk about all the time about bring your whole self to work. Like you have to know that, you know, recognize that your employees are people and give people the space to, you know, have feelings and and take like you said, like take the day off if they need to take the day off, take a few hours off, not have their camera on, you know, tune out of something too. I think, you know, for us for us in the media, it's it's really difficult, but you know, just as a quick example, uh, a few years ago when the the Brett Kavanaugh hearings were taking place, I knew that that would be really triggering for for survivors of of sexual assault, and so I just said to to everybody in our newsroom, you can tune out if you want to. You don't have to say that you need to tune out. You don't have to make a big thing out of it. Like you are welcome to just not pay attention to this news, not have to cover it, not have to 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 be involved. And I think you know, giving people recognizing people's humanity and people's reaction to things and, and letting people be people, you know, at work, I think is really important. That is, that is a perfect example. Exactly. Um, well, I want to thank you so much for coming back on the show. I'm going to find a way to have you back in (laughs) a few episodes (laughs) or something. Um, these conversations are so, so great. Thank you so much, Dorian. Of course. It was great. Thank you for having me. And that's all for this episode. Be sure to subscribe to Secrets of the Most Productive People wherever you listen. And we want to hear from you. Let us know what you'd like to hear more of from our show by leaving us a voicemail at 833-582-FAST. That's 833-582-3278. Or you can tweet us with the hashtag FCMostProductive or leave us an email at mostproductive at fastcompany.com. And if you want to take a deeper dive on this topic, check out Dorian's article on fastcompany.com. The link to that article is also in our show notes. And if you like this episode, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Secrets of the Most Productive People is produced by Joshua Christensen. 